and thanks for tuning in today. This was a particularly fun episode for me because I got to talk about one of my favorite subjects, genetics, with a kindred spirit, Dr. Alex Danis. She and I both did our PhDs in genetics at Stanford about 10 years apart, and we share a passion for educating the public about science. Dr. Danis is currently a freelance science communicator and video producer with a decade of experience producing online educational content. Her successful social media channels bring biology, chemistry, and genetics to over 125,000 followers worldwide. In this conversation, we discuss the role of DNA in making us who we are and why it's more similar than different across organisms and across people. We also discuss the pros and cons of consumer genetic testing, including the way that genetic risks are often misinterpreted. Last but not least, we share some thoughts on how our scientific backgrounds shape the way we navigate the world and why it's important to view science as a process, not a set of facts. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome, Dr. Danis. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. Yes, it is really a privilege to be nerding out with a fellow geneticist. It's not something I get to do very often. But before we get into the genetics, let's hear a bit about you, both your scientific background and the work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a freelance science communicator, but I got here through kind of a winding path. So in my undergraduate studies, I dual majored in both biology and film at Brandeis University. And I thought for a very long time that I'd have to choose between one or the other. So I actually went and worked at a small production company for a couple of years after college. And then I went back to grad school to pursue my PhD in genetics. And so I really sort of bounced around a bit. But throughout both of those periods, I had a YouTube channel that was really just a fun outlet for me to talk about science to the public. But it grew to the point that by the time I was graduating with my PhD, it opened up a bunch of opportunities to be able to actually do freelance work and be a freelance science communicator and make science videos professionally, which is super fun. And so I feel incredibly grateful that I never had to choose, that I was able to combine both my love of film and my love of science into a career. I'll tell you a little bit about my research background that in grad school, I was working on a project I really loved. I was looking at the genetics of a disease called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's a cardiovascular disease where the heart muscle gets too big. It creates problems in pumping blood around the body. And I was looking at both better ways to diagnose the disease and better ways to treat the disease. And I loved that project. I loved the work that I was doing. But I did know for pretty much the whole time that I didn't want to be a career researcher, that I loved talking about science even more than I loved doing it. So I've just been very grateful that since graduating almost five years ago now, which is a little terrifying, I've been able to make a career out of talking about genetics, which is just my favorite thing. So let's start getting nerdy. First of all, I want to hear from you. Why do you think that understanding DNA and human biology is really important for the public? I think it's incredibly important for everyone to understand DNA and genetics and biology broadly because we are all being asked to make decisions about it in our everyday lives. Even if you're not a scientist, there are non-GMO stickers on the food that you're buying at the grocery store and there are doctors routinely offering genetic tests and there are Instagram ads for consumer genetic testing and there's news stories about CRISPR. There's just all of these different things that we are all being asked to make decisions about and that are impacting our lives that I don't feel like 
everyone is equipped to participate in right now. And that's not because they are not smart enough to participate in them. It's not because they're not ready to participate in them. It's because education and media has not given everybody the vocabulary to participate in those conversations and to feel empowered to do that. And so again, when I started doing online science communication, it was really just fun. But over the course of the past decade, I've really become sort of mission driven that I want people to feel excited about genetics. I want people to feel empowered about it. And I want to give them the vocabulary that they need to be a part of these conversations. Because, you know, some of it, again, if you're choosing between the GMO chips and the non-GMO chips in the grocery store, at the end of the day, it does not have an impact on your life. To me, it's a bigger thing about marketing and branding and other companies making money in ways they shouldn't. Like I have issues with it, but whichever chips you eat aren't really going to have that big of an impact on your life. But if you're going to the doctor and they're giving you results of a genetic test, that could have a really big impact on your life. If you're doing an ancestry test and you find out that one of your parents isn't actually the parent that you thought they were, that could have a huge impact on your life. So I really think that everyone needs to be ready to face these conversations. And I don't think everyone should have to go and get a PhD in genetics to do that. I truly don't. I think that we should be creating media and resources that they can go to for credible, engaging, and empowering information without having to go back to school. It was kind of a long answer to that, but I feel very strongly about this. That's okay. I've done a lot of COVID science communication. So the one that jumps to my mind where a basic understanding of genetics would be helpful is this fear that an mRNA vaccine is going to alter your DNA. Maybe we can now jump into the central dogma, as they call it, the role that DNA plays in our bodies. Yeah, I mean, DNA, I'll say that actually RNA is my favorite molecule. It took me a long time as a geneticist to admit that. I know, I know, (laughs) because I feel like I should say that DNA is my favorite molecule. But the reason why DNA is so important is because it stores all of this information that allows our cells to grow and divide and build everything that they need and respond to our environment. And within almost every cell in our body is all of the instructions that are needed to create us and to do all of the things that our body does. And all of that is stored in DNA, but it's sort of locked away in the nucleus most of the time. It's just sitting there in the nucleus. There has to be a way for that information to actually be put into use. And that's where RNA comes in because that truly to me, I'm biased towards RNA because it's what does that information carrying. It's what does a lot of work in the cell. It can create a copy of that information and those instructions in DNA and then bring them out into the rest of the cell so that they can either do work just as RNA or in the central dogma, go on to create a protein. So that RNA can take the information from DNA bring it out into the rest of the cell and tell the cell how to make a protein that can then go on and do some job. And so that idea of DNA to RNA to protein and the idea that that's typically the direction in which information flows. I was about to say it's central to biology. That's why it's called the central dogma because it is so central to how our cells work, our tissues work, our bodies work. But I love that each part of it plays its own role. That DNA is like the book locked away in the library An RNA is a little note card that you write down the instructions on, then you take them off to go do something in the rest of the cell to make a protein. To me, it is always beautiful and incredible and striking that every living thing on earth uses that system, that that same DNA to RNA to protein system is what creates me and you. It's what creates the tree outside my window. It's what works in microbes and bacteria. That 
DNA code, those four letters, just four little nucleotides put into different orders, make up all of the diversity of life on earth. And that process of taking that information and moving it into proteins is what creates every living thing on our planet. That boggles my mind sometimes if I think too hard about it. And I think that it's just incredibly beautiful and powerful. And sometimes I'll catch myself just like, how does everyone not think about this all day, every day? How do you not just marvel at that, that we are alive because of this process? I just think it's so cool. I'm seeing a parallel between RNA and science communicators. You're tapping into the knowledge bank and you're bringing it to the people. You're executing on that knowledge so it can be used. I love that. I have not made that connection before, but yes, I want to think about myself as the RNA in this science communication pathway. I love that so much. Yeah, I wonder actually if you polled the public, what fraction of the people appreciate the fact that DNA from us is made up of the same ingredients, the same four building blocks as any other organism on the planet? I wonder how widely appreciated that is. I am... Sad to say, I think it's probably not as appreciated as we would hope. I haven't done that study. I haven't done that poll. But I would say that, again, you brought up COVID communication over the past few years. I've also done a lot of COVID communication and talking about DNA and RNA. I have just been surprised at the lack of understanding of what RNA is and where it comes from and what it does. I think about this every time that I see RNA trending on Twitter, I get really excited because it's my favorite molecule and I want people to be talking about it. And then I click on it and I'm almost always disappointed about what the discussion is because it is people who sometimes I think are ill-intentioned, but sometimes I think also are just misinformed about what RNA is and where it comes from. And I think don't realize that RNA is already inside of us. I think that people think of it as a foreign molecule, that it is something that only comes from a virus or it's something that only comes from a lab. And I've been truly surprised at how big that misunderstanding is. And so that would make me think that unfortunately, the understanding of DNA is probably at a similar level, that there's probably a similar misunderstanding. Because I think that people know that DNA is in us. And I think that people know that DNA is something we get from our families and our parents. But I have seen so many misunderstandings of how many copies of our genome are inside all of us. I think sometimes people think that there's one copy of our genome locked away somewhere in us and that if that gets changed, our entire bodies change. And that's not true. You know, we have, again, with the exception of red blood cells, all of ourselves have the same genome in them and they're just expressed in different ways. And so I really would love to do that, to drill down that extra level of not just do you know what DNA is, do you know what it does, but do you know that it's the same DNA? It's the same type of molecule that's present in all these other living things? Because my gut instinct says that people don't, that that's not something that's been appropriately communicated up until now. The other aspect that I find mind-boggling is that with only a small number of genes, which are the building blocks that have the code for those proteins, we can build a human being. I don't actually know what the latest number is for the human genome. Do you know? I don't. No, actually. In my head, I feel like I saw an updated number recently, but it's not many. It's in the thousands, right? It's not in the hundreds of thousands. It's, you know, low thousands. I think that ballpark 20,000-ish. Yeah, it's around there. And that is almost inconceivable. 
because you think of the different sets of genes that every different cell type needs. And there are so many different cell types because even we break it down of, you know, a neuron versus a skin cell versus a gut cell, but there are tens of different types of neurons and tens of different types of gut cells and they're all doing something different and they're all responding differently. That to me, again, is one of the reasons why I think I really love RNA because not every gene is turned on in every cell. If that happened, bad things would be happening. You know, you need to select the different genes that are going to build and support each different kind of cell. And it's sort of like turning volume knobs on all of these different genes to turn the expression of some of them up or turn them down, to shut them off, to turn them on. And so I think that that sort of combinatorial effect of all the different genes is so cool that we can get, again, not just every different cell type in one human, but then all of the different phenotypes that then present themselves across humanity as well, that, you know, you've got brown hair and blonde hair and everything in between. I think that that's just so cool. It's so fascinating. And that too, I think that's something that I wish people understood better. I think the fact that we all share the same set of genes and that there are just different variations of those genes between people, that maybe one person has a version of genes that cause blue eyes and one person has a version of genes that cause brown eyes, but we all have the same set of eye color genes and it's just different versions of them. That I think is a huge public misunderstanding because I hear people all the time say, and I don't blame them because this is how it's been presented a lot in the media, that I have the gene for X or my parents gave me the gene for Y. I don't know that it's necessarily harmful, but I think it is doing an injustice to the understanding of genetics and the understanding of how we all relate to each other as humans that, no, no, we all have the same set of genes. We just might have different versions of each of those individual genes. You talked earlier about wanting to give people the vocabulary to talk about genetics. So maybe we can do a little bit of that and talk about maybe as an example, how is it that a heart cell is different than a liver cell and maybe using the correct genetics terminology there? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about a heart cell and a liver cell, as I mentioned, they all have the same set of genes, right? So they all have the same genome. So that genome is if you think of all of your chromosomes, if you think of all of your genes, it is sort of the total set of DNA that is a part of you and your genetic code. But each of those different types of cells needs different sets of those genes to be turned on or off. And so we can talk about those genes that are being turned on as being expressed. So often you'll hear about gene expression. And what this really means is that if you think about my PhD was in cardiovascular genetics, so I think about cardiovascular genes a lot. One of my favorite ones was called MYH7. And I was always looking at the expression of MYH7. So was it turned on? Was it turned off? Was the expression high? Was the expression low? And so you think about that across hundreds to thousands of genes for each different cell type, and you can get a picture of what that expression looks like. And that's often called the transcriptome. It is called the transcriptome because each of those RNA pieces that is being transcribed from a gene is called a transcript. So we have transcript, transcribed, transcriptome. All of that comes from the idea that when we go all the way back to what we were talking about before, the central dogma, DNA is transcribed into RNA. That's the language we use when we talk about that copying. And then RNA is translated into protein. So that's when that RNA is then used to create a protein unit. 
I think that that's a piece of vocab that people get confused about a lot. And I've seen people get confused about a lot in my comment sections often is anything around transcription. Is that what does it mean to transcribe a gene? What is a transcript? What is a transcriptome? And that's really all that it is. A transcript is an RNA copy of a gene. And you can look at all of the different transcripts in a cell and classify all that as the transcriptome. And that can give you a picture of what's going on in that cell. I think maybe putting some really rough numbers on it might be helpful. And I'm sure this varies a lot from cell to cell. But let's say those two different cell types have the potential to make 20,000 different proteins from those 20,000 different genes, but they might actually be only making 1,000 of them at any given moment, but they're making a different subset of 1,000 Yes, through this process of transcription. So one of the things that I think is really cool is that if you think about there being as you mentioned, a thousand genes that a heart cell needs and a thousand genes that a liver cell needs to be turned on, to be turned into protein, to do whatever function they need. There's a portion of those that are going to be heart specific and there's a portion of those that are going to be liver specific, but they're not completely separate sets. There are still going to be a whole bunch of different genes that every cell needs just to create membranes and create structure and create the nucleus and all those kinds of things. So I think that's really cool to think about too, that there are some genes that are going to be present in almost every cell type, and then some genes that are going to be turned on only in really, really specific cell types. And actually, I even misspoke right there. The genes are all present in all of the cell types, but they're only going to be expressed in certain cell types. So I, again, this is why I think there is so much misunderstanding is that it's tough, right? It is tough to keep all of these things straight, especially when you're just sort of talking casually and listening to a news story and those kinds of things. But I think it is important to understand the differences in all of the different vocabulary words and what's going on. Again, because this is something intrinsic to all of us. It's something happening in all of us. And I just want everyone to be excited about that and empowered by that rather than scared by it. I totally hear you on the so-and-so has the gene thing. I think we need to, as much as possible, be a little more precise and say the variant. Yes. Like the ice cream flavor kind of concept. Yes, exactly. We all have ice cream genes. We just all have different flavors of ice cream. Maybe I've got mint chocolate chip and you've got Rocky Road, but we've all got ice cream in there. Exactly. What are some of the other common misconceptions, whether it's conceptual or language that you think are important to put out there? There are a couple. I think that really is one of the biggest ones. And then I think understanding about what it means if you do have a variant that puts you at a higher risk for a specific disease or phenotype. I think that we have not done a good enough job of educating people that just because you have a 10% increased risk of something based on a variant does not mean that there's a 10% chance you'll get it. We think a lot in genetics about looking at variants that can, of course, impact whether or not you are more likely to get cancer, whether or not you're more likely to develop something like Alzheimer's disease. But we don't do a really good job of telling people statistically what that means. And again, that's because communicating statistics is hard. It's definitely a hard thing to do, but often there will be some baseline rate, let's say, and I'm making this number up, but let's say there is a 1% chance that you or I will get cancer in our lifetimes, just baseline. And let's say it turns out I have a variant that increases my risk by 10%. That does not now mean that you have a 1% chance and I have a 10% chance of getting cancer. It means you have a 1% chance and I have a 1.1% chance because it's only 10% over that original thing. And that still might be, depending on what it is, it might be caused to go get additional screening. It might be caused to follow up with your doctor. It might be caused to take action. But I think that it often sounds a lot scarier than it is. It 
can come across just as something different than what the research actually shows. And that to me is one of the biggest ones that we see that big public stories about genetics and about these kinds of risks can have real consequences and impacts in public understanding of genetics and public action about genetics. Gosh, I think about a decade ago now, Angelina Jolie came out and she wrote this op-ed about that she had a variant that put her at increased risk of breast cancer and she went and got a double mastectomy preventatively. And after that article came out, the amount of genetic tests for those variants per 100,000 women went up significantly. And if you look at the graph, I'm trying to picture it in my head, I think it's like 10%, 20% or something like that, that you could see an actual jump in the amount of these tests that happened after that news story came out. And I'm not saying that that's either a good or bad thing, but that that story and that sort of presentation of genetics had an actual impact out in the population. Absolutely. I think human beings are really not wired to understand risk intuitively. And so you're kind of working uphill a lot of the time. And one of my top tips is one that you already mentioned is to make sure if you're ever talking about a risk increase that you also ask what was the baseline risk or as we talked about absolute risk. So how likely is this to happen? Not just how much more likely compared to some starting point. And I was just doing a little research today on COVID and autoimmune diseases. And I saw that different studies are reporting this in different ways. One was reporting a twofold, two or threefold risk of different diseases. Another one said a 40% increase in risk. And I had to really dig deep in those studies to find the baseline risk. And in one of them, for example, it was, you know, a shift from 10 per thousand person years to 15 per thousand person years. But you usually have to look hard because researchers are inclined to frame things in the way that's going to sound the most dramatic. It's not just the media. It's also researchers who want to make their results sound impactful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could go off on a four-hour rant on how the scientific publishing system and the sets of incentives we have for scientists kind of push people to do this, right? Because if you want to get your research published, it is very hard to get small results published. It's very hard to get quiet studies published, if that's maybe a way to put it. And it is much easier if your paper is splashy or loud or new or novel to get it into these big journals and to get those things out. And so I think there is this incentive system where you want to make it sound as dramatic as possible scientifically without lying, right? Like you want to always be true to the data. But I think oftentimes scientists are pushed to be like, but what's the biggest, craziest point out of this paper kind of thing? When sometimes the more actually impactful and important part is the smaller result, is the less splashy, but more repeatable result, whatever it is. And I think too, part of the problem as well is that it's often really hard unless you're actively at a university, unless you actively have some way of accessing subscriptions to scientific literature. Often all that the public gets to see is maybe the abstract if they go searching for it, which is only going to have those high level results. Or more likely, they're going to see a press release or a news article or something that is, again, paraphrasing and just taking the high line points and just sort of giving this really light and shallow overview. And you have to really dig deep and often pay money or have some sort of institutional access to get to those real results, to get to the stuff that's sort of buried deeper in the methods section and the supplemental areas and all those kinds of things. So again, I could rant for hours about the publishing industry and open access and how all research should be available to all people. But even if it was, it often takes a certain skill set to then go into that paper and read it and understand it because we're trying to convey a lot of information very simply. So we use a lot of language that 
our colleagues in whatever field we're in will understand quickly, but that someone, not even just from the public, but just someone from another field might not understand. So let's shift gears to the consumer genetic testing. And I want to hear about your experience and your thoughts on the pros and cons of it. Absolutely. So I will also state up front that I have produced videos for Ancestry, which is one of the larger consumer genetic testing companies before. So I want to get that disclosure out of the way. And I have both taken an Ancestry DNA test as well as a 23andMe genetic test. And I've also, from the animal perspective, when I got my dog, I did three dog-based consumer genetic tests. Oh, cool. Yeah, which I just thought was super fun and I wanted to compare all three of them. So I feel like I, as a consumer, have tried out a bunch of these different products. And I think that they're fun. I think that they can be a fun tool to learn more about your genetics and DNA and what that means. I think they can be a fun tool to create family trees. For me, gosh, the dog ones were super fun because we had a rescue dog and I was like, we don't know what she is. We thought she might be a terrier. Turns out she's a chihuahua and a cocker spaniel. Like, So it's fun and it's interesting as long as you understand the limitations of the test you're taking and the information that they are giving back to you. Because for most of the tests that are offered, they are not doing whole genome sequencing. They are not looking at every single one of the 3.2 billion bases or 6.4 billion bases that make up your genome. What they're doing is they're looking at very specific positions in the genome that have been previously correlated with some phenotype. So maybe that is something like, I know one of mine told me I was more likely to think cilantro tasted like soap, and that's true. Another one was looking at my risk for Alzheimer's. So there's a big range here in the types of information that they can provide and the types of phenotypes that they are looking at. I feel like you should define the term phenotype. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So a phenotype is the physical presentation or manifestation of some genetic variant. If you have the genotype that might say that you're more likely to think that cilantro tastes like soap, the phenotype would actually be that you do think that cilantro tastes like soap. So it is the physical manifestation of whatever that genetic variant is. And again, this ranges from everything from taste preferences to hair color to disease risk. So they are looking at a specific set of variants that have been previously correlated with something or that they think might be correlated with something. But they're not looking at every single base pair in your genome. They're not looking for every potential variant you might have. So on one hand, they're often looking for the most common. And I think one of the easiest examples to give here is the BRCA genes. So these are genes that have been correlated with breast cancer susceptibility in mostly small populations. So many of the early studies that were done on these BRCA genes were looking at variants, specifically often in Ashkenazi Jewish populations. So if you are of that ancestry and you have these specific variants, it could tell you a lot about your potential breast cancer risk. But if you are of a different ancestry, it may not have been as tested in your population. The findings from that original population may not correlate to your own population quite as well. Similarly, of the, again, I'm making up these numbers, but of the, say, 5,000 base pairs in one of these genes, there may be looking at 10 or 15 of those base pairs. If those results come back and say, hey, you don't have anything that puts you at risk in these 15 out of 5,000, that does not mean that you specifically don't have a mutation in one of the other 
4,985 base pairs that might impact your risk for this disease. So they absolutely have power. They can absolutely tell you things about your genome. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that they're looking at small subsets of variants from research that has often been done in small, often white populations. Can I build on that and say, you're looking at an incomplete picture of the genetic information. But I think just as important is something you alluded to earlier that these genes don't have perfect predictive power. Even if you did have the whole genome sequence, genetics is all about a higher likelihood. It's very rare that any gene gives you a perfect prediction for any phenotype that does exist. But most of the time, you're just talking about you're more likely to have such and such characteristic. And the reason for that is because most characteristics are shaped by more than one gene and by gene environment interactions. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an incredibly important part of this that, as you mentioned, it's very rare that a single variant, that a single gene is going to determine, especially something about disease status. It is much more likely that it is going to contribute slightly. The common example of that is height, that there are hundreds of different genetic variations that all influence your height a little bit. But that is also so coupled to your environment that did you get proper nutrition as a child? Did you get all of the nutrients you needed to reach whatever your genetic possibility of height would be? If you look at the variation in people, it's really easy to see that there is not just a tall gene or a short gene, right? There is so much variability in this that there's lots of different genetic variants coupled together with the environment that create the phenotype that results. And I think that is something that people forget when they look at these genetic tests. They see an increased risk. They see I have or I don't have XYZ variant and they take that as the be all end all when it really should just be a suggestion of potential phenotype, which I still think is cool, which is why I've done all these tests. You know, I still think that there is interest and value in taking these tests, but I think that you have to come at them with the understanding of what they can and can't tell you. And also, Again, another five-hour rant we could go on is the idea of genetic privacy. And do you want to give your genetic information to one of these companies? And what does that mean for not just you, but also all the people in your family whom you might share DNA with? What are the potential repercussions of that? So I like that they exist. I think that they are interesting products, but I think that you need to go into them with an understanding of what they can and can't tell you and what the potential repercussions down the road can be. Absolutely. So let's get to some other practical applications of genetics. So in your own life, how does your scientific background inform some of the choices that you make? It's a great question. And I feel like I'm about to struggle answering it because I don't know how I would make choices without it almost. I mean, I think even more than a single specific, I'm choosing this food over that food. I think that it's more about how my understanding of science and genetics impacts just how I make choices, right? How I read information that's coming into my world. The first thing that's coming to mind is like putting sunblock on to protect myself from both, you know, the immediate sunburn, but also the potential of DNA damage down the road. Would I still do that if I didn't have a PhD in genetics? Maybe, probably, like I might still wear sunblock, but I would probably think about that quite differently. You know, I'm thinking about the actual potential DNA modifications that could be made. But more than that, I think I think that my scientific background has made me so skeptical of the information that comes in and not in a bad way. But when I see a study that's talking about one day 
red wine will cure all your ails. And the next day, you know, red wine is the worst thing you could possibly drink. I think that I think through those things a little differently because of my scientific background. And I think that I often think about things from what their genetic possibility could be. I really chose to study genetics because for me, it was a way to ask and answer almost any biological question. And so I think that I apply that to every biology thing, every weird new health trend that comes in. I'm like, but what is the genetic mechanism of that? So I like to get very nerdy with it. But I think more than anything, if I could pass a little bit of my scientific brain on to other people, I think it would just be that skepticism, that just asking questions of not taking any of the information coming in at face value, but asking, how does that work? And why does that work? And where did that information come from? It's the mentality of being a two-year-old who just keeps asking why, 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 why. But as a 34-year-old, I've kept that. And I think that that has guided me well in life. I think so too. For me, having finished my PhD 15 years ago, I'm totally out of date on the frontiers of genetics. But what serves me well is understanding the scientific process and understanding that every study has more limitations than strengths and that science is always an evolving process. And so the word fact is almost misleading to have in a scientific textbook because it's really like the best available knowledge points towards this. And it's about how strong something is supported rather than fact and non-fact. That's what I carry with me and, and try to share with others. That's one thing that I think is so huge and so important that I think we need to be better about talking about science as a process rather than a set of facts. Again, there's one comment from all of the COVID communication that I did that is burned into my brain because I was talking about a recent study using words like maybe and likely, you know, to demonstrate that this was the best knowledge we had based on what was going on right now. And someone left a comment saying, you keep using words like maybe and likely. When I was in school, science had answers. You don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, oh, no, like science didn't have answers when you were in school. It had the best available information at the time. But the idea that, well, science is facts. And because you're not saying anything with 100% certainty, you don't know. I was just like, oh, no, like we've done such a poor job of communicating how science actually works, because that ability to be open to change, that ability to understand that this is what we think right now. And if new data comes in, we are open to changing our mind. We're open to updating that is so critically important to science, but it's not how it's often presented. It's often presented at the quote unquote end of a study, even though we know no study is ever really done as what scientists found. You know, scientists say that X, Y, Z, when really it should be, you know, Scientists at this point in time, based on the available evidence, think that XYZ, but could be open to the possibility of ABC, which is not as much fun of a headline, but is more truthful to reality. Yeah, it's definitely an uphill battle because humans like clarity and they want a clear recommendation and this uncertainty is just unsettling. And so it just doesn't go over well. To wrap up, if people want to hear more from you, check out more of your work. I'd love to hear where they can find you as well as some of your other favorite resources. Yeah, absolutely. So I am on all social media channels as Alex Danis. I also do a lot of work that I am quite proud of with the American Chemical Society. So I work with an amazing team there to make videos specifically about chemistry. And we think a lot about how chemistry can impact your life. So I'd love to plug ACS Reactions on YouTube as well. But yeah, I think I really value that there are a number of great independent science communicators out there across 
fields. Because again, my specialty is in genetics, but I love that there are medical creators, there are science creators, there are chemistry creators. You know, of course, the Nerdy Girls is always a wonderful potential resource for good things. The Unbiased Science Pod also has some great resources. But I think too, of people that I go to whose recommendations I really trust and appreciate, you know, Science Sam has great information resources. For space content, the Space Gal has amazing content and resources. In chemistry, I've really, really been loving a podcast that I just found called Chemistry for Your Life. And it's led by two people, one of whom is, I believe, a PhD chemist and working as a chemist at the moment, and the other who sort of gets to be a little bit of the foil to ask the questions. But it has been a recent find, and I've absolutely loved to sort of bulk up my own chemistry knowledge in a way that's very applicable to me. So my latest podcast recommendation is Chemistry for Your Life. That one's really great. It will definitely check that out. I need to buff up my chemistry as well. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking genetics with you. Yeah, it's been awesome. I love any opportunity to nerd out about these things. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Take care. 